Dear Christian friends, you ever noticed how, depending on what you're, you're wearing or perhaps even what you're driving is going to impact who you are and, and how you behave? If you have a, a work uniform on, for example, or a, or a badge or a pin that's associated with your company, you recognize that if you're out and about, you represent not just you, but that company as well. If you're driving a, a company car, you're probably going to pay a little more careful attention to how you're driving, knowing that you are not just reflecting yourself, but the company that you represent and perhaps the, the banner and the decals on the side that everybody notices. A school uniform, a, a badge or an award. When we have those things around us, we, we act a little bit differently. We perhaps are a little more measured in our words. We think a little longer perhaps before we speak and, and before we act because we know that we're representing who we are, aren't we? That's one of the, the reasons and one of the ways that, that we live according to, to who we are. And, and as you heard the second lesson this morning, Peter reminds us of the importance of, of living accordingly to who you are. And who are you? Peter says that you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Those titles are significant, aren't they? Now, they, they might strike you as words or, or titles, designations that would have applied to God's chosen people, the, the Jewish people. But you notice as Peter's talking, he applies them not just to limit them to any one group, but to all believers. He says to, to not just Jewish people, but to Gentiles, to, to you and me, now you, through faith in Jesus, are also a chosen people. You also are God's special possession. Now why does that matter? Because we want to live according to, to who we are who he has made us to be. And if that is who we are, we want to represent the one that has called us into his wonderful light. And, and that's not all. Notice that, that Peter continues as he lavishes each one of these titles, which really each one could serve as a sermon on its own. But he goes on to write, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were, you were not even a people. You, you, weren't, you didn't even register on the scale, but now you're a people. And not just a people, but a people of God. Once you were a nobody, now you're a somebody, but not just any somebody. You are God's somebody. There is no better place to be than than God's, to, to know that you actually matter to God. That, that regardless of your family name or your reputation or your achievements or lack thereof or the skeletons in your closet, it doesn't matter. You matter to God because God chooses to call you His own, His treasured possession. Is it, isn't it something just just to take heart, just to know who we are and live accordingly because that's who I am? Do we forget what an honor it is to actually represent God by living good lives because that's who we are? 
Not because we have to earn something before him, but because we have everything through him and because we matter to him and he has given us the honor of representing him as we live good lives. Because we know that in mercy he didn't treat us the way that our sins deserve. And so each and every day we we wake up with a, a clean slate, a new lease on life. Still God's, still his treasured people, his chosen people, those who matter to him. And because we belong to him, because of who we are, we live good lives. But as Peter continues, it's not just because of who we are that we live good lives. It's also because of who we serve. And it might surprise you that that one of the greatest beneficiaries of living a good life is you. You actually benefit by living a good life. Notice Again, what what Peter said as he continues in verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now to appreciate how you are served yourself by living a good life, you have to ask yourself, you have to consider, ponder these words of Peter a, a little bit. Do you take them seriously? Do you take them to heart? Do you believe it's true that, that Jesus, that through Peter... Jesus tells you that when you refrain from abstaining from sin, you're allowing war to go against your soul. Or do you write it off because this is just, it's Peter, and it's over-the-top Peter, being overly dramatic, being who Peter is, and, and really your sin isn't that big of a deal. That it doesn't really matter before God because it's all forgiven anyway. So this, this picture of warring against our soul isn't, isn't really anything that we need to worry about which perhaps is the most dangerous indicator that you better start worrying about it. Make no mistake that that giving in to sin and and temptation fails to recognize that that is war against your soul. And each and every day in our lives, sin is battling sanctification. And if you take that lightly, sin will get the upper hand and can potentially Win that battle for your soul. So, what do you do? What's the antidote? How do you respond? You don't sin, right? Amen. End of story. Stop sinning. Duh, of course. If Peter says that the, the answer to not letting sin win that war is to abstain from it, then just stop sinning. Except that it's not so easy, is it? And, and otherwise, if it, were, if it were that easy, I suppose Peter would have stopped right there. He would have just put a period right after, um, dear friends, I urge you, uh, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, period. End of the letter. But he went on, didn't he? He went on to say, live such good lives. Now, to understand how living good lives is going to benefit you, we also have to understand a little bit about the relationship between sin and temptations, practically speaking, in our lives. Now, I I don't doubt that there's not a person here that wishes that you could snap your finger and stop sinning, but you know that it's not quite so easy. 
So let's have a better understanding of how sin and temptation work in our lives. And really, it comes down to understanding something as simple as habits, oftentimes. The reason that we can't just stop sinning is because for many of us in our lives in different ways at different times, sin has become habitual. And once your brain and your body connect a habit, then guess what? You don't have to stop and consciously think through something. Your body, your brain just take the next step and say, oh, we've already formed this habit. We know what to do next. So here's how habits work. You have some sort of a trigger. And that trigger is going to bring about a response in you that is going to then result in some reward. So, you struggle with depression. Nobody likes feeling depressed. And so what is the next step? When that trigger, when depression hits, the next step, because you don't like the feeling of being depressed, is to turn to abusing pills or drugs or alcohol. Why? Because the reward is it numbs you from the pain of feeling depressed. And you feel a little better for a while. And guess what? As that happens more frequently, your brain makes the connection for you so that you don't have to take the extra steps of thinking through, what do I do next? Your brain just says, oh, depression? Oh, pills, drinks. And we feel better for a little while. And repeat, and repeat, and repeat. And, and the more often you repeat it, your brain hardwires to just take those steps for you without even thinking. So when you see a sexy image, when your, your marriage lacks sexual intimacy, that's the trigger, and when that trigger happens, the response is, well, I turn to pornography to get what I can't get somewhere else, and that's where I find release. And that happens enough times and you hardwire your brain that way. Your brain says, oh, wait a minute, there's an image. Okay, I know exactly what we do next. And that explains why it's not so easy to just say, well, stop sinning. You formed habits in your brain and your body acts accordingly so that you, it can save you the step and the processing power in your brain to not have to think through those steps. And that's why it's so difficult. You know, even when that trigger goes off and you're saying to yourself, I don't want to do this, I don't want to commit this, and I know it's wrong, but your brain's already taken over and said, it's okay, I got it from here, we know what happens next. So, it's not so easy just to stop sinning. Well, some will say that you can't actually ever get rid of a habit, but what you can do is you can change a bad habit to a good one. And that, my friends, is where living good lives comes into play. And it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to be easy, but with struggle and persistence, we can actually replace those sinful habits with good, positive ones as we strive to live good lives. For example, the trigger, depression. My brain senses it coming on, I know what to do next. But... If, through practice and persistence, you realize that that's destructive behavior that isn't actually helping you and you want to change that habit, instead of the trigger of turning to, to pills or drugs or alcohol, now you say, I'm going to replace that step with something else. When I feel depressed, what I'm going to do is commit to 15 minutes of praying for somebody else that I know is struggling. What's the reward? Well, you're feeling much better having prayed for that other person, and in the process, guess what? You're not focusing on your depression. 
And you've just, when you build that habit into place, you've taken a bad, negative, destructive, sinful habit, and you have benefited from living such good lives. And it's not just we who benefit from living good lives as we put these into practice. Notice that that Peter goes on and he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So it's not just you who is served, but, but you serve others as well. Unbelievers in the process of living such good lives. I know this is a bit of a challenge for us. And it's easy for us because it's almost natural for us as Christians, the worse the world gets, to kind of circle the the wagons and lament about how bad the world is, how wicked it's getting, how awful it is. Or maybe you had your head under a rock this last week and you didn't hear anything about the Super Bowl halftime show. But of course you did, right? Right? And what do we do? We get together with other Christians and we talk about how bad the world is and how awful such things like that are. May I make a suggestion? Stop whining. Let me ask you what good you really think it's doing when you as a Christian go into your workplace that you know has unbelievers or when you as a Christian post on your social media and you lament things like, the Super Bowl halftime show, and and other wickedness and how bad the world is. What impact do you really think that's making on unbelievers? Do you think that they are looking at you and saying, wow, I guess I I, I wish I could be more righteous like that individual. I guess I'll, I'll change my behavior like that judgmental Christian who only seems to whine about all the negative things in the world. Do you see how that does no good? And I'm not saying it that 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 I don't understand or sympathize or agree with how frustrating and discouraging it is to see the world go the direction it is. And so get together with other Christians and, and, and vent those frustrations and pray about them. But please stop whining about it out in the world because all that's doing is giving the impression to the world that you Christians are a bunch of negative, whiny jerks that only find negatives in the world and nothing good about it. There's a better solution. Live such good lives that they can't ignore you. You can continue to curse the darkness or you can light a candle. You can take to heart these words that that Peter encourages us. You can apply them to your life and you can look for all kinds of opportunities. They're endless. You will never tire of opportunities to serve and to love others who have needs. And when you get bored with one, do something different. But don't waste your, your time and your energy bemoaning a sinful world. Let your light shine. Be the salt of the earth. Live such good lives that others take note of it. And they are actually attracted to you rather than turned off by you. And here's the beautiful thing. If there's a silver lining in how awful this world is, you don't have to do a whole lot to stand out as doing good. But when you live such good lives, do you notice what Peter says can happen? He says that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They might, through your good life, have some connection to Jesus that ultimately ends up with them being home in heaven with you. 
That's what it means when Peter says, glorify your father. The same way that Jesus said it in the gospel, the same phrase. Now, of course, they're not going to to come to faith in Jesus just through your good actions, but the points that Jesus and Peter here is is making is be so attractive in living good lives that other people want that. And when it stands out so much in this sinful, wretched world, people will say, what's different about you? Tell me why you live that way. Ah, And then you get to point them to the solution, to the answer, to Jesus, who himself is the light, who himself is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who is the Lord, the one that we have come to know and to love so deeply that it is the greatest honor to be able to live our lives for him. And whether directly as we have the opportunity to confess and to proclaim saving faith through Jesus and direct them to the same, or if, it, if it's simply a matter of they search it on their own because they know there's something different about you as a Christian shining your light in an otherwise dark world, the hope and the prayer is that they would join us glorifying the Father when we're all home in heaven. And ultimately, not only... Is it a joy to to live good lives because of who we are and and because of who we serve ourselves and others? But ultimately, to do so is to glorify our Father. That is the the greatest good. If, If we could do nothing else but live good lives to honor the one who served us and loved us first, to give just a fraction of gratitude that he deserves in thanks for for mercifully not treating our sins as we deserve, would that not be worth it right there just to live good lives for him? To say nothing of all of the other blessings that Peter points out will come as we live good lives? So, what are you going to do? Are you going to take to heart Peter's encouragement to to live good lives? Or are you going to just spend the rest of your days here on earth griping about how, how awful the world is and not make any difference? I'll tell you, as for me and my family, we're going to strive to live such good lives that our unbelieving friends can't help but take notice. And the prayer is that as they do, God opens up doors and opportunities to point them to their Savior, Jesus, the reason that we live the good lives that we do. Amen.